0: You're listening to the Evanston Bible Fellowship Podcast. EBF is a community of sojourners empowering one another to cultivate gospel transformation. To learn more about our church, visit ebfchurch.org. It is good to be back among our church family, one thing I mentioned is it's um, these are, these are some, some muscles that I've had to maybe stretch and haven't been worked out in a little while, but it is good to be able to uh, open up God's word for us here. And we look forward to introducing our son at some point, Silas Jack. He is a delight. He's been gaining weight like a champ. We are operating in like a constant state of sleep deprivation, so I apologize ahead of time. I might mix words, you know, all kinds of things, but... Uh, I guess I can't use that excuse all the time, but I'm gonna play that card today. But thank you, church family, for your prayer, for your support, your encouragement along the way. It means so much to us. We have been in and are returning to our series in the Gospel of Mark. So if you if you would please turn to Mark uh, chapter three, starting in verse 20. And Mark is a magnificent work. Um, this is a series that we have called Jesus the Servant King. And what Mark does is paint a beautiful mosaic of who Jesus is, but in ways that are not so expected. He comes modeling, Jesus comes modeling service and sacrifice, challenging the power structures of the day and beckoning us to think about how we treat and what our attitudes are toward the downtrodden and the marginalized. Mark 10, 45 says, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so in a time of uncertainty and conflict, we say, where shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. It is vitally important that we refocus on the life the ministry and the gospel of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And by way of reminder, Mark's gospel is by John Mark, believed to be a relative of Barnabas, travel companion of Paul, and somebody who then spent time with Peter recording his own reflections to the point where the early church came to refer to Mark's gospel as the gospel according to Peter. He wrote most likely in the mid to late 50s as the first of the Gospels from Rome at a time when many could still personally remember some of these events that took place. And he wrote primarily to Roman Jewish and Gentile background believers in a way that makes the good news accessible to everyone. He wrote a narrative about the life and teaching of Jesus that invites us almost like as travel companions along with him. As story by story, we piece together a beautiful mosaic of who Jesus is. Mark writes in such a way, you might pick up on this as you go, even as the shortest of the Gospels, it is fast-paced, it is action-packed, it is full of vivid details, has a a lively down-to-earth style, probably one of the reasons I resonate with it, and focuses more on Jesus' Actions than his words, although his words are still very important, as we will see. Mark is a drama in three acts. It follows the prologue in chapter one. The first act takes place in and around the region of Galilee, running from chapter one, verse 14, all the way to chapter eight, verse 21. And there we see Jesus healing and casting out demons, performing miracles, gathering this ragtag bunch of disciples and commissioning them, uh, inviting them to be with him and then sending them out on mission. The second act takes place then on the road to Jerusalem from chapter 8, verse 22 through chapter 10, verse 52, as Jesus sets his face toward Jerusalem, knowing full well what lays before him. His, his impending suffering and death. And then the third act, the narrative slows down, the pace slows down significantly as, as the events of this final week in Jerusalem, the final week of Christ's life are marked by days and the final days are marked by hours. And I'm especially looking forward to that time at the end of this series where we'll be able to um, often, what we cram into you know something like the Holy Week, which is good, and we should i 'm looking forward to slowing down like Mark does in his gospel and exploring this final week in jesus' life slow, more slowly and in more detail. But today we return to the first act where conflict has been increasing. Jesus has forgiven The paralyzed man, if you remember, he calls a despised tax collector. He eats with sinners. He's questioned about fasting. He declares and demonstrates that he is Lord of the Sabbath. And then, in the passage immediately before where we are here, Jesus faces mounting pressure pressure from the crowds, pressure from the religious leaders, pressure to perform. And in the face of that, he spends time with his Father. He prays for and identifies 12, 12 disciples to be with him and to send them out to carry on his very own mission. And so in the verses immediately before where we are here, there is an actual listing of the 12 disciples. And so that's where we pick up our story. I'd love to read the passage for us this morning. And as we do here, please stand for the reading of God's word. After the reading, the response will be, thanks be to God. You're welcome to follow along, too, as we, as we do this. Mark 3, starting in verse 20. Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, he is out of his mind. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, he is possessed by Beelzebul, by the prince of demons, he is driving out demons." So Jesus called them over to him and began to speak to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, it cannot stand. That kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. Truly, I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. He said this because they were saying he has an impure spirit. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, Your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and my brothers? He asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my mother and sister and brother. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity, addresses people's different understandings surrounding who Jesus is, particularly pushing back on the notion that many have, even to this day that he is simply a good moral teacher. Perhaps you know where I'm going with this. It's been referred to as the Lewis Trilemma. At the end of chapter three, he writes, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. but let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Here in Mark 3, 20 through 35, we encounter two accusations, essentially, that are leveled at Jesus that are very similar to what Lewis points out here, first, that he is out of his mind, that he is a lunatic, and the second, that he is possessed by the devil, that he is under the influence of the devil. And what we'll see in this passage is that far from being out of his mind, and far from being influenced by the devil, Jesus is the Son of God, who plunders Satan's domain, who forgives all of our sins and causes us to belong to the family of God. So looking at the first accusation, in verses 20 through 21, Jesus' earthly family accuses him of being out of his mind. Now we, here we find Jesus back in Capernaum, most likely in the the home where he is used as his base of operations. And as a reminder of the pressures that he has faced, there is a large crowd that is pressing in on him to the point that he is not even able to eat. I couldn't help but think about once attending the Taste of Chicago here and coming up against such a crowd, it was like a a four-way intersection and there was such a crowd, some of us kind of cringe even thinking about this many people, but like such a crowd that we were all trying to go across one another, but none of us could go anywhere. That's how thick the crowd was. At this point, though, new characters are introduced into the drama his earthly family, specifically his mother and his brothers, according to verse 31. Later in Mark 6, verse 3, it reveals Jesus as Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon, and also him having sisters. The absence of Joseph in this story leads many to believe that he had passed away at this point. But concerned with what they have been hearing and wanting to do something about it, they come to restrain him. That's actually what that word means. They come to restrain restrain him perhaps seeing Jesus as a danger to himself or out of concern for the family's all-important reputation. The reason they seek to do so is because they believe he is insane, out of his mind, as the text says. You know, there are are a few examples in film of families who try to deal with family members that they perhaps perceive as bringing shame to the family. Um, In one of my wife's favorite movie, The Goonies, I can't help but think about the Fratellis and how they keep the, the brother, the son, sloth, chained and under wraps. In, in Canto, the madrigals, are fe- they, you see their fearful attitude toward their brother, Bruno. Maybe you've been a part of inter- intervening and in having had to try to reel in a family member who is perhaps perceived as gone off the deep end. Or maybe you are the one that has been tried to, you've, they've tried to reel you in, that's okay. We'll just just, uh, leave that possibility open here, but honor and shame, honor and shame were incredibly important among first century Palestinian families. And Jesus' family here, earthly family, may very well have seen him as bringing shame to the family, even damaging the family reputation. And their best explanation at this point was that he was simply out of his mind, that he needed to be restrained, brought home, kept under wraps Well the second accusation comes in rapid succession this isn't actually the last time that we'll see the fa- Jesus earthly family in fact mark uses the, his earthly family almost in a way it's called sandwiching you see it at the beginning of the passage and at the end of the passage we'll come back to that but the second accusation comes in rapid succession that is the religious leaders accuse him of being under the influence of the devil verse 22 you know, Jesus is clearly on the radar of the religious leaders in Jerusalem as these teachers of the law or scribes, as other translations might have, are sent almost like a, a delegation to look into him. Sent as a delegation. But even this is a lot more, as it, the story bears out, a lot more than some neutral sort of fact finding mission. No, they are immediately hostile. And within their accusation actually there are two intertwined ones, that he is possessed by Beelzebul and that he is driving out demons through this influence. Who is Beelzebul? Given this word's background and the surrounding context, Mark seems to use it as an alternate name for Satan. And they acknowledge, they have to, they have to acknowledge that he is doing something powerful. There is no denying that, but try to attribute what he is doing to the very devil himself. And what the religious leaders cannot grasp is the truth to which the demons themselves in Mark's Gospel have already testified to that he is none other than the Son of God, empowered by the very Spirit of God. And so it is at this point that Jesus responds authoritatively to these two accusations, but in in ways that we may not necessarily expect. Jesus answers the religious leader's accusation with two parables and a direct warning, verses 23 through 30. Verse 23 introduces us to Jesus' ministry of parables for the first time in Mark's gospel. And where the religious leaders had been murmuring to one another about this figure, Jesus, knowing their thoughts, knowing their heart, addresses them directly, dresses them directly, but what he does is speak to them in parables. Again, the first mention of Jesus' ministry of parables in Mark's Gospel. We'll we'll come to know them well. We'll get to know them well along the way, especially next week as we look at the parable of the soils. A parable, though, is simply a comparison or an analogy that he's used to, to illustrate one or more spiritual lessons. And in parables, Jesus employs things like narrative or allegory or even proverbs along the way. But I think it's worth noting that instead of overwhelming them with arguments, Jesus aimed to get them to think using vivid imagery that would have been known and familiar to them as an invitation even to open their minds to the things of God. And I think this is a reminder to us as well that people are rarely argued into the kingdom of God. We may feel the temptation to want to rout people in debate, but do you know the adage, have you heard it before, about winning the argument but losing the person? Jesus' use of parables, I think, is instructive for us today. It is a reminder for how we too are to invite people in to consider the claims of Christ, to stir their thinking, perhaps taking one one pearl of wisdom at a time rather than being argued into the kingdom, rather than being routed in debate, inviting people to ponder the claims of Christ. Well, the first parable is about a kingdom divided against itself, verses 23, the end of verse 23 through verse 26. You might recognize these words, especially the quote, a kingdom divided against itself cannot stand, something that informed and uh, inspired Abraham Lincoln in, in one of his speeches. You know, I, I, I sometimes chuckle when I hear certain quotes or things that are clearly from scripture that are attributed to people or when people think that they're only from um, other people. So you can think of lots of examples of this, phrases, Perhaps like, fight the good fight, go the extra mile, by the skin of your teeth, the blind leading the blind. There are lots of these examples. I think it's a reminder of the Bible's enduring impact in a lot of ways. One of our um, one of our EFCA church planters in Wyoming tells the story about going into a Starbucks and uh, striking up a conversation with the barista noticing some of the tattoos on her arm and the quotes that were on her arm and saying, oh, Psalm. I can't remember which one it was, but oh, Psalm so and so. And she, her eyes got a little wide, and she was like, no, that's Bob Marley. And he kind of backed off a little bit because he didn't want to, like, press the point. But the fact of the matter is she had Psalms, you know, written, written on her arm. These, though at times, these phrases, these things that maybe people unknowingly or don't realize are from Scripture are sometimes connection points that we can have with people in helping explain the gospel of Jesus Christ. Being able to say, hey, did you know that's actually from Scripture? Now, uh, carefully and, <laughs> and uh, relationally as well, I, I might add. But anyway, I think it is a reminder though of, of the, the Bible's enduring legacy, these connection points that we can have with people too. But at any any rate, these these hypothetical sayings that Jesus uses here basically develop the same point. If Satan were to do this to himself, it would be completely self-destructive. It would be suicidal for him to do this. Strength requires unity, and an attack on any part of his domain is a threat to his power, not some sort of collusion with him. Therefore, the conclusion should be that what is happening is not the result of civil war, but is instead a direct frontal assault on Satan's domain. And that is what Jesus describes in the second parable, binding the strong man in verse 27. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. This... Sorry, sorry, I get derailed sometimes, but this conjures up images in my mind of, like, the strongman competition on ESPN. Anybody know what I'm talking about? To my kids right now, I'm, like, the strongest person they know. I love, I love this, uh, you know, this time in life. Um, I, think I, I think I mentioned this before, too. I'm supposed to be the funniest person in their life, too, but uh, my wife taught my daughter how to say, dad joke. Did I, did I tell you that already? I might have mentioned that. Oh, that one pains me. Anyway, Jesus uses an allegory here, though, in this parable to make his point. The strong man, maybe I don't want to be associated with the strong man here, but because the strong man is Satan. His house is his domain, which is this present world, and the plunder is the people that he has taken captive as as victims But the stronger one is Jesus himself, who has been sent by God to invade enemy territory, to plunder his house and liberate people from spiritual bondage. And his casting out of demons, as we have seen in the the previous verses, is proof that he is binding the strong man. But this, the climax of this binding, the climax is the cross, this binding. This plundering happens climactically at the cross. And I think, too, that we are meant to hear echoes of Isaiah 49. Verses 24 and 25, where the servant of the Lord, we heard heard earlier read Isaiah 53 is the call to worship. This figure, the servant of the Lord, Isaiah pictures the servant of the Lord rescuing captives from cruel warlords. Verse 24, can plunder be taken from warriors or captives be rescued from the, from the fierce? But this is what the Lord says, yes, captives will be taken from warriors and plunder retrieved from the fierce. I will contend with those who contend with you and your children I will save. This flows then into the direct warning in verses 28 through 30. The direct warning. Here, Jesus uses the phrase, truly I tell you, his way of emphasizing the certainty of the truth that he is about to authoritatively declare. And by declaring people can be forgiven of all their sins, Jesus points forward to his substitutionary death on the cross, what we were reminded of even in hearing Mark 10, 45. But then what follows is this whole concept of the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, What is this? A lot of ink has been spilled over this question. But I believe within the context here in Mark to blaspheme the Holy Spirit is to continually accuse Jesus of being empowered for ministry, not by the Spirit of God, but by the devil, which is a twisting of the truth. It is a rejecting of God's rule. And the key to this understanding is the explanation that follows in verse 30 when it says, he said this because they were saying he has an impure spirit. This is an eternal sin because it demonstrates willful and ongoing rejection of Jesus, his message, and yes, even the work of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus warns them here, he issues this direct warning that they are perilously close to engaging in such blasphemy and repeating the same mistakes that many of their forefathers made even as they left, even as they left Egypt during the Exodus. Isaiah 63, verse 10. Yet they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. So he turned and became their enemy and he himself fought against them. They're in danger of repeating the same mistake as their forefathers who in the wake of the exodus grieved the Holy Spirit and made God their enemy. But sometimes, well, just, we have to acknowledge this, sometimes in reading this, Christians worry about whether they have committed this sin. I've sat ac- I think about one gentleman in particular who I sat across from who was shaken to the core by the thought of this and had come seeking counsel. Maybe you've been there too. But I believe this concern even in its, in and of itself is evidence that one is open to the work of the Spirit and hasn't committed what is called here or maybe what is often referred to as the unforgivable sin. The vast majority, almost always, the times I interact with people who have this fear, it has nothing to do with the context of the passage that we're talking about. But I think it should serve as a warning to those who engage in continuous deliberate rejection, those who have persistent hardening of their heart toward God, the work of the Spirit and the presence of Christ. These are the ones who are in danger of not being forgiven, of not experiencing God's salvation. And I think one thing that leapt off the page at me this, this time around was that while we often jump right to the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, what it is, whether we've done it, We often gloss over the miracle of the phrase that appears right before it. Look at the miracle right before it when it says people can be forgiven all their sins. People can be forgiven all their sins. No matter what you've done, you are not beyond the reach of salvation through Jesus Christ and the forgiveness, the life-giving hope that He pours out. No matter who you are, or what you've done, or even how far you perceive yourself to be from God, you are not beyond His reach. And that is what He turns to next. This passage concludes as Jesus answers His earthly family's accusation with a radical reprioritization of God's family. Verses 31 through 35. Once more here, the focus shifts to Jesus' family who arrive on the scene. They're waiting outside, sending someone in to get Jesus. And Notice the contrast, even the spatial imagery in this passage. Jesus' mother and brothers are standing outside. They're outside looking for him. While Jesus' followers are sitting around him, they are seated in a circle around him. Jesus responds with a radical reprioritization of the family of God. His point here is not that family relationships aren't important, but that a higher priority takes precedence, the call to follow Jesus in the costly way of discipleship. At the same time, Jesus does not abdicate family responsibilities. A couple of examples here. At the cross in John 19, he addresses John and he arranges for the care of his mother, Mary, who then in the beginning of Acts, we see among the community of disciples, being cared for among the community. In 1 Corinthians 15, we are reminded that after the resurrection, Jesus appeared to his brother James, who would later become the leader of the church in Jerusalem. And yes, Jesus' brother Judas is the one who most likely goes on to pen the letter to Jude. Jesus does not abdicate family responsibilities, and in, in turn, we should long to see our earthly family members join the broader family of God. But if doing God's will means facing hostility from our earthly family, that is a price worth paying. Our ultimate allegiance is to our God and Father who has adopted us into the new spiritual family. And the beauty of this new family is that becoming a new member is open to everyone, regardless of race or class or gender, The only requirement is faith in Jesus Christ, he who is our elder brother who has gone before us, the one through whom, through his death and resurrection, has made the way for us to be adopted into the family of God, for us to be co-heirs with Christ. Daniel Akin, I love how he points out a a couple of things surrounding this passage. I'll kind of summarize it. No physical family connection is ultimately necessary to be in God's family. And when you are a member of the family of God, you are part of the family that matters most. And what I love here is that the family of God is a spiritual reality and not a physical one joining together. Think about Christ's followers, zealots and tax collectors, legalists, liars, murderers, self-righteous religionists, and all kinds of sinners like you and me. That is the miracle of this family. We have infinitely more in common with our sisters and brothers sitting around us right now and our sisters and brothers in Ukraine than even close friends or earthly family members who do not know Christ. And we are called to live like it, to love like it. This should inform the way that we pray even for the church in Ukraine. God would be honored and glorified through their witness as they declare and do the gospel. They are our sisters and brothers in the broader family of God. And so far from being out of his mind or under the influence of the devil, Jesus is the Son of God who plunders Satan's domain climactically at the cross, makes forgiveness for our sin possible through his substitutionary death, and causes us to belong to the one family of God through faith in him. Jesus is the stronger one who has invaded Satan's domain, plundered his house, and liberates people from spiritual bondage. And he has done so climactically at the cross. It is through his substitutionary death and glorious resurrection that we, in fact, can experience the miracle of being forgiven all our sins. Those who live in persistent calcified rejection of him, even ascribing his powerful works to the influence of Satan, will not be forgiven. But those who receive Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord through faith are adopted into the family of God, come to have God as our Father, Jesus as our elder brother, and sisters and brothers now united with an unshakable bond in Christ Tim Keller connects this passage with the prodigal son in writing Jesus is the true elder brother. He willingly brings us into the Father's family at his expense. He died for us, he was plundered for us. We sit at the Father's table dressed in Jesus' clothes with his ring on our finger all through him. We must celebrate and live out the fact that we are members of a kingdom family. And it is all at the expense of our big brother, Jesus Christ. I found this question particularly impactful. Do you live every day as if you are a member of God's family, accepted and loved? Remember, oh church, remember, a child in a family obeys not in order to be loved and accepted, but because they already are loved and accepted. Far from being out of his mind or under the influence of the devil. Jesus is the son of God who plunders Satan's domain climactically at the cross, makes forgiveness of all our sin possible through his substitutionary death, and causes us to belong to the family of God, ultimately through faith in him. Amen, church? Let's say amen once more. Amen, church? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this magnificent picture of your son Jesus, for Mark's ongoing mosaic of his life. And as we hear these words, would we receive them with joy? and Would we live them out for your glory? Father, we thank you that we can, in fact, be forgiven all our sins, that you made a way when there seemed like there was no way through the precious blood of Jesus Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. We worship you. We thank you for what you have done to give us belonging, a home, a future, in and among the family of God. And so, Lord, would you cause us to live like it, to love like it, to love one another here and beyond in your power and in your strength and for your glory. We love you. And we pray this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this week's message. To hear more messages from EBF, subscribe to our podcast. And to find out how to get connected with our church, visit ebfchurch.org.